to more to come pw comics world's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news i'm heidi mcdonald the graphic novels editor uh reviews editor at publishers weekly and you can find us on social media everywhere at pw comics world on facebook on twitter on tumblr on everywhere uh so today i am talking to george rohack the mysterious mover and shaker behind all sorts of things in the comics world um george i i I know you're someone who does things but i don't know even what your title is what what is your title so now that i'm uh kind of on my own i'm just uh doing manager is fine uh i'm kind of that jack of all trades thing i've been doing things in comics and kind of nerd culture for so long, doing costing, doing scheduling, doing print buying, doing distro, doing everything. That's just manager is the easy, all-encompassing right. title, I find. Well, there you go. Uh, now you, I guess, um, well, you're announcing your new business this week, so which I think you just did on social media. So, uh, And it's called uh, Organized Havoc, correct? Correct. Okay. I'm, I'm going to read your, your statement you, you sent uh, out, uh, and then we can kind of go from there. Organized Havoc is a public benefit corporation sent out to manage creators and projects of nerd culture at large. Um, so what does that mean? <laughs> what is What does that mean? It's so basically, I find myself continually working with people in comics and games and animation and um, just kind of... Uh, really weird like kind of nerdy cool stuff and um that's the that's the most general kind of envelope i felt could uh encapsulate that without making it uh just nigh incomprehensible or three pages long (laughs) right right well let's drill down a little bit i mean i know you you uh the first time i guess you crossed my radar was you were working at oni and um you were business development manager there i believe correct yeah, I started as ops direction, and then I moved into biz dev. Right. Okay. And and I know you've also worked with um, what Pumpkin and uh, K Nine. Well, now I'm messing up the name of it. I, I should have your LinkedIn page in front of me. But I, I know you worked with um, Tapatico also, right? With Homestuck, uh, with a lot of web comics. You you're uh, worked with a lot of people. I think mostly in the web comic space. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that'd be fair to say. A lot of people who are like web, who are web focused, would be like, yeah. Okay. Um, And I guess the other thing that, just in my impression of in the stuff that you've done, is a lot of times people I sit around with creators and they're like, you know, I'm so bad at business. I just wish I had someone to do the business end for me. And uh, I guess is that that's sort of the services you offer, right? Like just taking care of things that are are business side stuff. Um, maybe as a consultant also helping with crowdfunding and all that stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, the beginning of this week was, you know, going, uh, was walking along with everyone that, uh, I'm working with being like 1099s are filed, right? Here's how <laughs> right. we do it. Here's the website. Here's the, where we're, how we're going to mail it. And you know, everybody's like, yay, that normally goes out late and we're really worried about it. So yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So definitely. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit just about um when did you start at oni how long ago was it that you started working there uh 2010 was whenever i started at oni okay so Um, so we have like six years of comics comics development here uh a wild six years it's been as well yeah well uh sorry not not to uh interrupt um but, but but before then, I had uh, had a small company, and I did some stuff um, while uh, I was in while I was doing my undergrad and everything. And so I had this company, Blue Day Media, and we did uh, the biggest thing we did was this anthology called City Limits okay. um, that uh, was just like a ton of people like at the time. And this was well before Kickstarter. This was two thousand six. Started in two thousand five. Um, the idea for it and. Yeah, we put that out and got like, you know, light distro for it and everything. And this was like doing the, hey, we're going to ship within like a week of getting it printed so we could do the pre-orders on PayPal, even though at the time PayPal wasn't, that was a gray area. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And then, yeah, I've been kind of, that was the first biggest thing that had distro. So really it's been well over 10 years that I've been like doing comic stuff and right. getting them out in the world. 
But yeah, Oni was like the first like kind of okay. big, big formal company started. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, good. That gives us a good time frame to talk about because certainly, you know, 10 years ago, um, I mean, social media was was really like, I mean, Twitter had just started, um, you know, Facebook was not the behemoth it is now. I mean, I think uh, MySpace actually existed 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, crowdfunding didn't exist. Uh, Jeepers, what a different world it was. <laughs> What a simpler time. (laughs) Well, uh, so so let's, boy, see, now it's like, like, see, I I know I did a panel with you at MoCA a few years ago where we did talk about, like, uh, career management, I guess, or, you know, how to make a career in comics, and uh, which was a really fantastic panel. I think Jillian Tamaki was on that panel as well. It was um, really interesting stuff. And, um, I mean, on the beat, uh, which is celebrating its 15th anniversary this year. Good God. Yeah, um, I've often talked about this. I mean, just, you know, how do you find a way to to develop your career as a cartoonist? I, I just wrote the obituary for Dan Spiegel, and, you know, there's a guy who is really the, the paragon of of what I think of as the golden age cartoonist, you know, a guy who, who probably had a family, had a mortgage, and he just got up every day and he went to his drawing board. And if it was draw Blackhawk, he drew Blackhawk. He drew, you know, if it was draw Scooby-Doo, he drew Scooby-Doo or Aquaman or whatever. I mean, there wasn't all this, this, you know, career planning. It was just, oh, I'm going to keep getting work from this publisher because I'm on time and I do good work. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's certainly not, an idea that anyone gets into comics with these days, I don't think. Not exactly. From what <laughs> from my experience, no. Yeah. So how would you, I mean, let's, let's talk, all right, let's take a couple case studies. Let's talk about, like, the big one, Homestuck. How did you get involved with Homestuck? Uh, so I got involved with Homestuck, um, gosh, that would have been... Like 2000, late 2011, 2012. Um, uh, basically, I just knew several artists that had been contributing to it. And um, eventually, one of them was just like, uh, hey, um, uh, I was at this secret panel at San Diego mm-hmm. that um, uh, Robert Koo uh, did. Um, and Robert Koo of Penny Arcade. Let's, let's yeah, make sure. Yes. Yeah. Because this is a, uh, lot, a lot of this world is kind of not as well known to our listeners, I think. So, so, so this is yeah. really good education for them. Yeah. So, like, Robert Koo um, was at the time, like, the manager, like, operator of all things Penny Arcade. And so it was just kind of like this panel talking with a lot of cartoonists and stuff. And one of, like, my uh, friends uh, at, who had continually contributed to uh, Homestuck at the time was like, how does somebody find a Robert Koo? And Robert was basically like, no idea. And I've been doing, like, a lot of business stuff at the time, like, on the side. Like, um, the Joe um, Nosemack and uh, James Lucas Jones, you know, the two heads over at Oni, um, were kind of letting me do, like, freelancey weird side stuff on the side that... Um, was just rad of them. Uh, and yeah, so what happened was I was like, oh, hey, you know, I'd love to like help out if Andrew's having a problem. Um, you know, like love the comic and everything. And she put me in touch with him and it just kind of led from there. It started off where it was just like really focused helping manage some of like the, uh, kind of businessy legal stuff. And then it just expanded and expanded as like we started working out into more and more things. Um, until at, until at a certain point, I was basically like, hey, I, I think I'm going to have to, um, you know, pull back. And um, uh, because you're asking so many hours of me and it's potentially going to start conflicting with my, you know, day job. Mm-hmm. And that was whenever they were like, well, can we be your day job? <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's then I, then I switched over to working for that working for them full time. And that's whenever we did like the campaign for the game and did the game with Namco Bandai and got like, you know, the merch uh, association with um, Wheel of Fine. And yeah, so. So, well, okay. So I guess what some of my listeners uh, or our listeners are, are maybe thinking right now, well, some of them are like, what's Homestuck? And I'm not sure I can even answer that. Uh, but it is like this wild, I should probably explain this. It's like this insanely popular webcomic that's very interactive. Uh, it's created by a guy named Andrew Hussey, but other people did contribute to it. And it ran for, uh, I'm not sure off the top of my head, it ran for like six or seven years, right? 
Yeah, and yeah, just about. Something like 800,000 words. Um, it's also known as MS Paint Adventures. Uh, but it was like really rabid fans. Like you see people dressed up. You know, you mentioned a secret panel a couple of minutes ago. And I think for people who read print comics and aren't really in this this world, I think this is almost like a secret world that exists <laughs> right flowing through and around uh, the world of like Batman and Spider-Man. Uh, because, oh, yeah. because you see people who are dressed like Homestuck characters. Uh, and if you don't know about it, you have no clue or no idea that this is all part of a secret society. But, yeah. but, but at the same time, how did, um, how, like, how was Homestuck able to hire you full time? I mean, did they make money from ad revenue originally or was it from crowdfunding? I mean, what was, what was the monetization engine for this? Merchandise. Um, uh... Yeah. Originally, um, it started off, you know, um, uh, the previous comic that Andrew had done, Problem Sleuth, was like well received. But then Homestuck, he started and it just hit a note with people really hard because he focused more on the narrative and less on like the interactive things to start off with. And um, then it just became more and more narrative as uh, things went on. And yeah, so what happened was originally they started selling, you know, like, um, uh, kind of music compilations from the series because there's music and sound throughout like different updates. And then that led to doing some t-shirts and then that led to do plush and that led to do patches and all these other things. And so it, it just was increasingly becoming, you know, and that was, that was the point where I started coming in was right before they did their big, like, you know, kind of first plush and like major like product release was they were gearing up for that. And kind of everybody was like, this is going to another level that's like extra crazy and we, you know, need to hire a bunch of people to kind of make sure all hands are on deck for this because if it goes under, then it kind of is really, really bad for everyone and then Andrew can't focus on the comic because right. he's going to have to focus on this stuff. So, yeah. And um, it, it's uh, it wasn't even really like advertising. It, it, throughout the uh, tenure of the comic, um, Andrew was pretty much relying on just um, uh, Project Wonderful, mm -hmm. which is like really mi which is minimal um, monetization. It's like really cool, but it's kind of like and it, it these days it's more helpful for like webcomic folk to find other webcomic folk. It right. was made by Ryan North of Dinosaur Comics. Oh right, of course. Um, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it was really, really the merch that kind of like built the empire that helped them, you know, kind of have the money to be employing people. Right. Um, now, they also did have a, a, a huge crowdfunder for a video game that was like a $2.4 million Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. um, so, obviously, that was another. Now, now, that said, the game is yet to come out, correct? <laughs> Yeah, the game the game has gone through a few developers since the my t since like my time there. Mm -hmm. Um and uh but yeah, they had announced it it went through Greenlight just this past holiday and I want to say they had said that like it was either this this month or March that it, the first episode is going to come out. So Okay. Oh, so it's imminent. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, I would point out there have been several video games, which are a very well-funded um, category on Kickstarter, and it takes a lot longer than a year even to develop a good video game. I mean, it's a yeah. year's long progress. So, I mean, you shouldn't even, you know... I mean, that's not necessarily even a knock or a criticism. Um, but I do think... I mean, Homestuck is probably... Well, I say one of the most profitable web comics, but there are other web comics that make a lot of money. Um, but I got to ask you, like we've heard about this legendary merchandise um, monetization. I mean that that was the the path. Like if you did a web comic, that was the dream path for how you could make money on doing this. Is it still a viable uh, path for creators? Yeah, it's just something that people have to be smart about. Like, a lot of people attempt to, um, I, I, like, kind of look at what, you know, large companies are doing and try to shoot for that mm -hmm. and set, like, price points that are, a that are you know, equivalent to what someone is ordering, you know, 50,000 units of something for, 
and then making no money uh, because they're like, oh, well, this is what it was in, you know, like Hot Topic or the store I went into or on Amazon. And it's like, well, you can't price like that because they're moving thousands and thousands of units. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's still feasible. It's just something that people have to be, you know, kind of smart about and look at like their numbers. Um, but it's it's definitely not the days of, you know, the early aughts, whenever right. web comics were a new and like, um, trendy thing and you know you could just do a logo shirt and that could pay your rent um, <laughs> uh, those, those days are definitely ha- have passed uh, now you have to kind of be appealing to you know like your fan base in particular and really kind of making things for them that you yourself also enjoy um, right and I, I mean I guess from my perspective the reason why is just that there's so much more competition you know there's just so much more of everything and everything's gotten more sophisticated I mean it's not only merchandise I mean the, the attention economy of course as well mm-hmm. uh, I mean, is, is that accurate am I correct in my guess yeah I mean the, the one thing is that we see a lot more people who are reading like many 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 more things mm-hmm. um, and binge reading is kind of you know as binge washing for things like Netflix and Amazon are like becoming more and more the trend binge reading is definitely becoming a thing that we're seeing across the majority of narrative comics where we'll just have swings of people you know tell us like oh I just haven't read the past like month or two like I just read about like every like two or three months and I just catch up I read you know a couple dozen pages or a hundred pages or so all in one go and that's how they're consuming the content that's how they're consuming the content or it's um creators like uh Ngozi who I who I'm doing like work for Bukazu who does um the comic check please Uh and um this is about uh basically hockey and college um and relationships and it's really good but the way that she handles updates is she puts up updates of you know like 10 to 20 pages um all at once and then does a few of those in over the course of one week and then she will just you know put won't update for you know a few months like Mm. two like anywhere from two to three months and that kind of creates a frenzy moment for the audience to all galvanize around um and that seems to be something that kind of can help people cut through the noise of everything else because it creates a galvanizing moment for your audience to get really excited about a thing because then they are all reading it you know, enjoying it at the same time, not necessarily over this long protracted space. Right. Um, the 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 only risk with that that people always run is that if you go too too long, then it can be you know a hit to your audience because then people could forget. Well, you have to be reliable. I think. I mean, it has mm-hmm. to be like if you say it's like like the you know the trust the trust equation you know if you're going to say that oh i'm going to do this every month and then you don't do it every month then you know people are going to lose lose uh lose faith in you i will say we we have interviewed Anne here on uh um more to come before and it's one of our most popular podcasts um ever you know we have covered check please and you know that's certainly another comic uh our our co-host kate is kate fitzsimmons is a is a uh, much more into the Tumblr webcomic world than Calvin or I, and uh, you know she's much more up on on things that are that are hip and cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I, you know she convinced. I mean, Calvin and I are now we're totally on board with Check Please as well. So uh, that's another really great example. Um, what though? I mean, hmm. uh, so okay. So the great, you know, pay the rent with the merch. Uh, simple, simple. Ah, oh, the simple days. Uh, should, that's what this podcast should be called. Ah, the simple <laughs> days um, uh, are gone. So, I mean, what would you, I mean, if you were giving advice to someone who has ambitions, I mean, what are, what, what kind of revenue stream has replaced that? Um, Patreon is definitely a model that has stepped up, though not to like the point. It, it's something that, you know, is kind of symbiotic with the level of your audience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not going to be, paying massive bills if you're still just having you know only a couple hundred or a thousand or so um visitors or like readers so you know but that definitely has helped a lot um supplement for a lot of people that i know who are kind of were paying the bills with merch and then it started to slide a bit and then patreon came along and that helped the other thing is you know kind of getting into making making kind of collected editions books 
uh, solid things that are what your readers are enjoying on a more consistent basis. Um, most of the people I work with, it's, you know, if they don't get a book out in a year, uh, it would be pretty bad financially for them um, because a book every year is what helps, you know, galvanize their fans and, you know, gets them, you know, a significant portion of their income for the year. Right. Um, so that's kind of the thing that a lot of people work towards. So the, the, ten, the dangerous thing or the, you know, the part that's rough for a lot of people is that first, you know, year to like 18 months where you are essentially working to get this thing out there and to try and find an audience with it. And then if you, and then if it does hit an audience, then you could potentially, you know, make a book or make more merch and be earning like a larger income off of it. But that go, Oh, go on. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. Uh, Sorry. So yeah, that very first period is definitely the, you know, that's whenever it's the like labor of love, you're putting it out there and you're not really earning anything off of it. Right. I was going to say, I talked to Todd McFarland about image and, uh, you know, he said that you got to just live on macaroni and cheese for a year, you know, to be able to do this. Now I think, even when he said that, like, you know, even after the first year, you might only have graduated to uh, once a week throwing a bit of bacon into your macaroni and cheese. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't necessarily a sure thing. But yeah, there is that, that leap of faith that you have to take in, in any of this. I, I think that's, that's, that's kind of the, the promise of, of the comics co- career, you know, that yeah. where you take that leap of faith. You know, okay, so you, what you just said is, is incredibly fascinating to me for so many reasons. Uh, I want to talk about Patreon, which I use, actually. So, um, uh, but, but just to, you know, think about collected editions. Now, that's really interesting to me because I think during the merch land, land rush, I think that the collected edition was not a big, uh, focus of the web comics model. Um, no. It was kind of an afterthought, maybe. Yeah, yeah. For like, it, it was basically a thing that people were like, "Oh, well, we guess we should do a book." And for that initial period too, it was still a time whenever um, reaching out to printers, um, especially like large scale printers, and figuring out like how you should be buying things. That knowledge was still all like shrouded in mystery. Um, one of the things I've talked about for a lot over the past like few years with um, like creators anytime, you know, I'm invited to is, you know, how to do pricing, how to do costing and, you know, things to look for. Um, and yeah, for a lot of people, it was just, you know, the also the idea of books aren't cheap and sending someone, you know, $300, $400 for t-shirts is one thing or, you know, like $100 or so for patches or pins. But um sending out a check for, you know, seven grand to a company that may be in Canada or a company that's on the other side of the country or, scary. you know, it's overseas. Scary. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, ter- it's terrifying for someone who, you know, may uh, that may be, you know, 70% of the money that they make in a year. Right. Um, so, yeah, for a lot of times people are like really worried that it was just going to be like they were just going to get burned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it was also a thing where people weren't, really thinking about collected editions and i think there's still some people who don't as like a physical to me if your primary um if if the primary awareness of your like the comic that you're making is on the web the physical edition if you are only selling direct like if you're not doing a retail if you're not doing a version that is going into barnes and noble and you know bookstores at large um that book should be an artifact for your fans because that's who you're going to be selling it to so you know kind of go crazy with it do cool treatments and things like that for a long time we had people that were just doing the you know gloss cover you know that's it um and not uh, gloss cover no no treatments no like special extras in the book or anything like that and it's kind of like well if the if the material is already readily available and consumable for free somewhere then what like what's the purpose of this printed edition if you are not getting it into other people uh, like if it's not being sold by people who are not you then it should be something that is like precious to you and your fans and so that's kind of like the thing that i've encouraged a lot of people and yuko and ananth from johnny wander are perfect examples of this like a- any book that they put out that collects stuff that they have from the web is like a precious object it's like crazy pantones foils cutouts you know all that sort of stuff and it's still reasonably priced because they're selling it direct so they can afford to do that but 
it makes it, you know, like an item, an artifact for like them and their fans because it looks so cool. Right, right. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's part of it. I mean, even, you know, 10 years ago, since we're kind of talking about this 10, 10 year period, uh, you know, the iPhone debuted 10 years ago. Um, and I think everybody was like, oh, print is dead. You know, it's doomed. Everybody's going to be reading it on their phones. And yeah, quite the opposite has happened. And mm-hmm. part of it is because of this precious object of it um i do mm-hmm. think part of it is the fact that a book is interactive you can flip through the pages you can do things with it um and i think people get pleasure for reading in print that they don't necessarily get from reading online it's a different experience and uh it has it has survived and i would say it's even you know survived and uh you know, with it triumphantly. <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, like, we, uh, the, you know, the graphic novel sector is one of, like, the uh, sectors in the book market that has shown, like, consistent growth over the past few years. Yes. Um, and, I mean, even whenever it comes to, like, the independent creators, like, just selling, like, their own stuff directly, it's, yeah, it's a solid, solid thing. Because, again, like, even if you are enticing new fans with that, that artifact if you have something that looks like an artifact and looks cool it's going to make people like go oh wait i want to take a look at that rather than if it's just you know looks like it's because again i mean trade paperbacks were originally made because to cash in and they were meant to be semi-disposable like they were meant to be the step up from the comics but they weren't meant to be like hard artifacts that you treasured and kept forever. Right. It was an easier way to get everything together. Um, and so you don't need to match that if you're, um, uh, and again, the other reason that they were like that was because the content that they were collecting was unavailable to the regular consumer <laughs> because it was no longer on, you know, in stores, on shelves. Right. Um, and so, yeah, like you don't have to meet that anymore. It's a completely different um kind of game for people and so yeah it's yeah really good. it is and it's also i would have to say i i mean I'd like as you were just alluding to you know graphic novels are one of the categories that has shown the most growth in print over the mm-hmm. last few years you know they were up 11 you know nearly 12 percent in 2016 and and that was far and away the category the fiction category that showed the most growth so you know it is it is uh, it is fascinating to me to see this evolution where, um, you know, the book is really part of the experience of of a lot of web comics now. You know, not all of them, but but uh, certainly quite a few. Um, now, you also mentioned Patreon. Now, I use Patreon. I was an er- I think I was a fairly early adopter of it. Uh, I definitely got on after like within the first year, and uh, I've I think I would count myself as a pretty successful Patreon. Um, I mean, I don't make a living off of it, but it is, uh, you know, it, it definitely helps out, um, you know, helps me eat. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've had pretty, pretty solid growth in it uh, as well. Um, and, but I, I mean, I sometimes I look at people who are much better known than me who have Patreons and, you know, they're making like $200 off of it. And, and I'm amazed, you know, whereas some web comics make thousands of dollars. Um, yeah. So, so what's George? What's the secret? <laughs> so, w- one of the things is that it's the access and communication of the person to their community. Mm-hmm. Um, people who people who don't foster kind of that like one to one interaction uh, with with like their fans online and with their with like infusing themselves into their work so that it is easy easily identifiable as oh this is very clearly like that writer that artist um you know oh i love like how they i love their unique style or how they you know like craft a story um if you are doing that and you are keeping you know presence online it's going to be able to convert people to um you know a patreon or you know kind of a crowdfunding campaign of any sort. Uh, whereas if you are just kind of using social media for like, Hey, this thing is out, go buy it. Right. And that's it. It's just for news posting. Uh, your, your audience probably isn't really going to be following you for kind of that connection. They don't, they don't feel that like vetted interest and investment in you as a creator. And so as a result, um, you know, they aren't going to convert. Um, into being like patrons or backers for any kind of project because you're treating the relationship with them as very um 
you know, kind of opaque. And there's nothing, I want to make certain that I say it on the record, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, people who want to just, you know, have that, like, buffer, that barrier in between, that's totally fine. It means you're going to have to run your business and your, you know, creative, like, earnings in a different way um, than, uh, than if you are, you know, engaging with your fans on a daily basis, if you're talking with them online, if you're, you know, doing streams and things. Um, yeah, th- that's, those are completely different entities. They're both valid, though. Um, but yeah. Do you think that the audience does respond? I mean, do they like having, say, a, a, a Google chat, you know, every once in a while with their favorite creators? I mean, or is that, I mean, there's so much going on, you know? Yeah. Um, here's the thing that I find. The idea that it exists mm-hmm. is more valuable than it existing. Right. Um, for example, uh, to bring them up, um, Brian and Scott from Testadine, the Atomic Robo guys, um, we had live streams for a long while as part of, you know, the, their Patreon campaign. And um, there would be like maybe one pe- person or, you know, two. And this was like for, you know, there was a couple hundred people that would be able to like access this kind of stuff. And we would give prior notice and it would be outside, like, you know, work hours or conflicting times or things. And yeah, it was just like, but people were back, but then some people were backing like the tiers to get the exclusive stream, um, which again would sometimes have no people come to it. And yeah, it was just, it's more the people like the idea of, oh, I could get access to that, but I don't need to. And I really like just giving this, giving these people money for making a thing that I really, really love. Uh-huh. Um, and that said, though, don't stop doing it unless you, like, explain to the community why and change things up. Right. Um, don't be a jerk about it. Um, but yeah, it's it's not, like, a requirement, but it's one of those things where some of the people I see with, like, kind of the highest, um, you know, get a lot of people really excited and things treat live streams as a way to get work done. Uh-huh. Um and engage, like don't even necessarily really, really engage with their fans that way. Maybe comment on like the music or a thing they're drawing once every half hour. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it can just kind of help humanize you to like your audience. Do and you, do you think that that I guess this is the, really the great question? Um, you know, now that we're so embedded in this social media world and uh this kind of instant access which could also backfire obviously mm-hmm. or can propel you to the presidency so <laughs> um and you know that's something i keep i don't want to get into politics but i i will say i do keep pointing at one thing out about donald trump it's like this guy is a great communicator and he's very charismatic you know and i mean actually he does communicate to his followers very well and you know for people who are like oh how did this happen i mean that's really a key a key to it and uh you know so there is a lesson for cartoonists there as well I guess a bitter lesson. Um, <laughs> now you're working with the Atomic Robo guys. Now um, they started, didn't they have? Uh, weren't they with Red Five for a long time? Yeah, yeah, Red, Red Five. Yeah, okay. Red Five was their initial publisher, and um, basically, because Brian originally had roots in web comics, he did the comic Eight uh, Bit Theater uh, ages ago. Um, and you know, whenever the publishing contract was up. Um, it was just something where they were like, you know, let's try this on the web to see if we get like a larger kind of, if we can grow the audience because it it is very rough working with, um, you know, kind of publishers that don't have the capacity to, you know, be buying the covers of previews or things like that. And I mean, Red 5 did a really amazing job for, you know, like the size of publisher that they were, but Brian and Scott were just like, look, you know, like, we are not young kids anymore. We want to see if we can really make this thing kind of blow up and just like return to kind of Brian's roots and like the, see if he can tap in the audience that, you know, he had and build on the one that was already existing for robo itself. And so, yeah, that was 2000 and, um, uh, 15 was whenever they put, um, robo on like robo started putting robo online. Um, and it's been really, really successful for those guys. Um, uh, that it's around, you know, actually, before I quote nonsense, and this is going to be 
publicly available very soon. Um, I'm finishing up an article about it um, momentarily. Um, but yeah, their numbers right now it are for like just web views mm-hmm. are sitting around, you know, 175 to 200,000 like sessions a month, um, which, you know, that like that means that there's potentially more people reading Robo on the web than some of like the top books from top floppies from sure. Marvel and DC. And, you know, like that's mind boggling. Like they aren't getting, you know, um, uh, write-ups to the same level or things like that, but that's not what they were concerned with. It was more being able to secure access to their fans and be, you know, kind of doing the stuff how they wanted and on the schedule that they wanted. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, really solid. Um, like they have grown basically consistently month over month since the, they started putting things online. Right. Well, that's an interesting... See, that's another very interesting case study uh, just because I think, you know, and Red 5 to me was like this really good company that always flew under the radar, you know, put out some really good books. Maybe they were yeah. a little ahead of their time, maybe. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, to see somebody go from one model to another and then be so much more successful in this this. You know, I, I mean, I, I, to me, it's like harder to be successful in web comics just because their, your competition is a hundred thousand other things, you know, and, uh, and, and the attention. And even though it's free and, uh, you really need to stand out. Um, even though if you are good, you can get an audience that responds right away, you know? So, um, what would you say though? I mean, I'm sure you, uh, have had, uh, the same experience as me. Uh, and that comics are so inclusive. And, you know, every time I hear people say, like, oh, comics are, you know, so crappy and, and, you know, hard to get into them, I'm like, well, I don't know about your comics, but here it's like, to get into comics, all you have to do is say, I drew a comic, and you're in. Um, however, not everyone is going to be an Andrew Hussey or uh, Scott Wagner or uh, Yuka Odo. And, uh, you know, how do you, I mean, how do you balance the fact that this is just an avocation for so many people? Um, I mean, the, the thing is, is that not, and not everyone is going to become, you know, Tom Cruise right. who becomes an actor, but that doesn't mean that like people who want to act shouldn't act. And the same is true for comics. Like there's going to be people who get, you know, tons and tons of fans like talking about them nonstop and have lots of fan art drawn about it. Um, that doesn't mean that like your comic, um, your story is any less valid. Like there's a lot, there's an increasingly like wide swath of people who are silently earning like solid livings for, you know, what, like where they exist, like how they like to live off of their comics that you wouldn't get, that you wouldn't know of them. And you probably haven't heard of them that I certainly probably haven't heard of them. Uh, but there's, you know, people who are just subsisting off of, you know, a fan base that maybe only has like, you know, 5,000 like to 10,000 readers. And that's enough to like get them a solid income well above the poverty line. But, you know, they're not going to be winning Eisner's or Harvey's or, you know, what have you. They're not going to be getting nominated for Ignatz's. Like they're just going to silently be operating, doing their job and kind of to take it back to how you started at the beginning. They're just going to be getting up Sitting down at their <laughs> sitting down at their desk, they're going to be drawing comics or draw or, or like doing something on their Cintiq, and just that's how they'll treat it because they're, they're because instead of going, this publisher is always going to have work for me. They're going to be thinking this community is going to have like you know feedback and money for me. Wow, um, that's a great way of putting it, George. <laughs> um, that's a great that's a great succinct uh, statement of the evolution, really. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of other things. Um, one of them is Hiveworks, which uh, I am uh, on. Uh, partly, you know, I at your uh, you you I asked you, you know, I I went to you when when this offer came in for the beat to be hosted on Hiveworks, and you know, you gave them a good recommendation, and uh, you know, it's definitely been very helpful to me. Um, but I mean, Hiveworks builds themselves as a web publishing platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is this, this another part of the equation? I mean, I think they're mostly advertising based, although they do, or they're starting to offer some other services, but I mean, is this another part of the creator equation? 
Yeah, it certainly can be. Um, like high, like Highworks. Um, uh, like I can personally talk about you know like their team. I've had experience with them. Like they're really, really dedicated and passionate about you know kind of the medium and the creators that they're working with. Um, it, it, there are also you know kind of other platforms out there. Um, you know, Tapastic is one of them. Um, we saw. I forget the name of the other one. They went away about like a year or so ago. Um, and that's kind of the thing that uh, with any of the services where it's like they own like the domain and the site and everything, that's where I'm always, maybe I'm just like an old school paranoid. Uh, I'm like, well, if suddenly that like site that is like, you know, operating doesn't hit like a profit margin and their investors want to pull your comic could be gone overnight. Um, and uh, that's what uh, several people faced uh, two years ago. I really wish I could remember which site oh, that was. Oh, man. Is it... Uh... <sighs> it w- wasn't like... Um, like It was an old old school one, like Drunk Duck or something like that. Um, I, th- I want to say that's that That's not w- even owned. I mean, that's like way back. Yeah. yeah. No, no th- th- this was uh, like... Yeah, this was in the past few years. I, for- I want to say something, maybe Tunes or Ink, but... Um, okay. I- Regardless, it, it, it's a it, it was a issue where they kind of announced with basically a month notice that hey we're closing and buy um, get your com- get your comics while you can off of the off of our service um, and that's the thing where um, that I kind of like about uh, Hiveworks is that they will you know for people that they pick up they'll help build sites but if you own your own domain or you want like you know stuff um to be still kind of like handled by you they'll let you they'll like you know work with you on those sorts of things so there's still that kind of i know overnight things aren't going to completely disappear like at worst it's just going to mean you know potentially out of revenue and stuff cross like sold in the store and some convention things are going to be a little messed up which all those are manageable problems yeah. versus the where people access your stuff disappearing overnight is a problem that is not easily yeah, fixed. Yeah, and I will, I, I, you know, I'll close sign on that. I mean, they've been, um, you know, super uh, transparent about everything. And, uh, you know, I've worked with a bunch of people. And to me, that's really, really, really valuable. I, you know, I'm not going to say we always agreed about everything, but it wasn't like, you know, we said it would just, you know, said what we thought. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that's really great. But, uh, you know, you mentioned Tapastic, and that's another thing that is interesting to me. I mean, there have been quite a few mobile first platforms launching. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there was Stila, which kind of is still going on, but, um, you know, not like, I think, uh, did not uh, launch as hoped for uh, since they fired the entire staff. Um and now operate as a mysterious manner, but uh, you know, Tapastic uh, is definitely doing that kind of stuff, and uh, of course, Line Webtoon, which is mm-hmm. huge in in Korea, but they are doing stuff that is uh, domestic as well. Now, yep. do you see this as being um, a platform? Do you think that mobile comics are, uh, are are a platform that's viable here in in the United States? Um, I mean, I think it's certainly something that you can make. Um, uh, that you can find an audience for. Um, I, I'm really interested in see like both uh, Webtoon and Tapastic are very heavily invested in. So that's one of those things that to me is I'm like, cool. That means that they're, they've got huge marketing budgets and they're really pushing to like mm-hmm. make sure that people are going to be earning money. But uh, I don't know if, you know, kind of the ad revenue or what their further, you know, models for, earning income <laughs> back for the investment they're making into the creators is long-term sustainable. So, um, yeah, I, but I think it's um, something where if you're formatting comics more for like mobile, then realistically that's pretty much just akin to, you know, doing a gag a day strip. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's very similar in kind of thought structure. You're doing something small, easily digestible, and, you know, very quick to kind of go through that people are probably going to, like, share very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've seen, like, a lot of those comics, um, you know, Zach Wienersmith of Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal, um, Cyanide and Happiness, um, that, you know, ha- saw, like, crazy, crazy explosive growth because... They made comics that were easily, easily formatted like that and shareable. Right. And, you know, that's one thing that I don't think can be uh, that is often lost. And what we're talking about is that people uh, really do like to read a short comic that makes them laugh. 
obviously mm-hmm. this propelled the comic strip, which is uh, still in the United States the most popular and successful form of comics, although now it's not, but, you know, at its peak it certainly was. And, um, uh, you know, this, as you say, it easily ports over to a mobile experience or an online experience. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes I do think, uh, obviously there's a lot of new ways of doing things as, as we're talking about and you're, you're discussing, but, uh, sometimes you have to go back to the very pure motivation of why people do any, like anything, you know, and people like to laugh. I, I will stand by that to my dying day that people like to laugh. Um, but yeah, Weedersmith, Smith, I, he has like a huge Patreon, I know, mm-hmm. and I know he has like enormous, enormous uh, traffic, and uh, so yeah, he's killing it, basically. So, um, um, yeah. you, you know, you haven't mentioned, um, or you mentioned it in passing, but we haven't really talked about Kickstarter. Now, I mm-hmm. know Kickstarter, like a lot of indie publishers really feel like Kickstarter is the way forward for them, and that they can like launch a uh, a season, and I mean, we're talking really small presses, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, 2D Cloud and uh, Locust Moon and, and uh, you know, Retrofit does it that way. So we're talking mostly kind of indie comics, art comics, but they really see it as a platform where, where they can launch their season and get the, you know, the money to pay that printing bill and then put out their books. Um, and that's become a, a very significant model for, for small publishers. But, um, I mean, is it still a way for, for individual cartoonists? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, gosh, uh, everyone that I have worked with has been doing basically annual book campaigns, right. and they've all seen, like, every time they do one, it's, like, usually slightly more backers than the last one or more money pending, um, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's definitely really good. Um, one thing that I'm seeing, actually, is this uh, kind of um, uh, partnering up um, which I'm a big proponent for. Um, cause one of the things that a lot of people will kind of come to me about is, Oh, well, if like these creators are doing all this stuff on their own, then like, what's the point of a publisher? And I'm like, well, um, the point of a publisher is to increase like your audience size to get it into like people's hands who normally wouldn't see it because libraries are not going to, you know, a- typically approach an individual creator and pick up their books. Um, and, you know, it's much harder to get into, like, the award circuit if that's kind of something you're interested in. Um, publishers uh, secure a very vital role. And so one of the things that um, we've done with a few books recently is uh, with Johnny Wander, we did it with Lucky Penny. And um, we're doing it with the uh, Our Cats Are More Famous Than Us Johnny Wander anthology is we teamed up with um, Oni Press to... Uh, actually have the creator have their own like direct editions that they mm. will not like wholesale. They will not, you know, um, put out into distribution. They'll just sell direct to fans like, you know, on their website and at shows. Um, but but then, uh, just to point out that they, they have like regular editions that, um, you know, go out to comic shops and bookstores and everything. Right. Right. And so that's that, that they still work with a publisher to put all that stuff out into that market and participate in that promotion because as you said earlier um for a lot of people the web kind of doesn't exist and so for 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 a large uh portion of the industry you know even if you have someone who you know was the size of of andrew hussey um having a book out that selling direct doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's not going to really register for them until it hits, you know, the books uh, until it hits like the direct market, the bookstores and people can start seeing numbers. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting because um, the kind of like press that will happen for whenever the physical release comes out or the direct edition comes out versus what, what has happened or, you know, we've, seen happen on editions that the creators just did themselves. Right. And, and, and like, you know, at the end of the day, it shows that, you know, kind of working with all the different partners that you can to get your comic into as many, um, you know, kind of markets and avenues as possible is the best thing to keep growing your audience because some people just want to read something on comiXology some people want to read a PDF because they've got like a viewer for those. Right. Some people want it on the website. Some people want it, you know, uh, a physical tone that they're going to read. Um, and so if you are not 
appealing to how they want to engage with your comic, then you are, you know, just kind of shutting the door on them because yeah. they're, they're very likely not to go, Oh, well, I guess I'll settle and read it in this format. I don't like, uh, they're more likely to go, okay, I'm just going to read something else. Right. Well, it, you're, you're absolutely correct. And you know, that's the one thing that there, there really is, is true for everybody is there are so many avenues now. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, on the beat this year, we've launched a, uh, I, I've been trying to do a free comic every day where I just link to something and I mean it's not just web comics. sometimes it is a downloadable PDF or sometimes it's something on Comixology or um, you know Michael DeForge is doing a comic on Instagram now where he mm-hmm. puts a strip up every day and he also has a Patreon and he's also published by Drone and Quarterly and he's also published by Kayama Press and you know <laughs> he also used to work on Adventure Time so uh, y- you know you have to, your head spins your head spins with all the choices you have and that's why you need Need someone like a George Rohack and a controlled chaos to uh, <laughs> to put this all together. So um, I think after listening to this, you could certainly see why. Now I understand. Or organized havoc. Okay, that's it. I, I messed up the name of your new company, but so this organized. There is havoc out there. So many choices. And uh, George Rohack, you help people organize the havoc. I think we've answered the question I asked at the top of the podcast. <laughs> now, 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 you have just launched your website, uh, and you also have a newsletter. So, uh, so and you said you were writing an article. Where is the article for? Um, I'm just going to be throwing it up on uh, Medium, most likely. Uh, I just am. I have an old uh, uh, background in academia, uh, where I did like research theory writing along with you know kind of surveying people, and that was like what my thesis was on. And so I just, it's one thing I wanted to get back into for years. And so yeah, I'm just going to be doing analysis analyses of you know kind of different markets, how to put stuff out there, and just really doing like focused one like one off things and so you know kind of the analysis of atomic robo since they relaunched in january of 2015 online to now is going to be kind of the first thing um about that well you know at both the beat and publishers weekly we eat up these kind of analyses uh it's our favorite thing when other people do a lot of work and give us a lot of information <laughs> so uh we will be spotlighting the dickens out of all this stuff um, well, George, it looks like we're just about out of time here. So, um, thank you so much for sharing some of your insights with us. And, um, uh, sounds like it's going to be an interesting year, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Most certainly. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. Well, as always, there'll be more to come.